on October the 4th, 1970, when Janis Joplin failed to show up at Sunset Sound Studios by 6pm, Paul Rothschild, her producer, gave in to his uneasy feeling all day that something was terribly wrong. He sent John Cook, a road manager for the Full Tilt Boogie Band, over to the Landmark Motor Hotel to see why Janis wasn't answering her phone. Rothschild would later tell Rolling Stone magazine he had never worried about her being late before, but in his heart, he knew this was different. Cook raced to the seedy Landmark Hotel where Janis was staying. He banged on room number 105 and yelled for her to open the door, but he was met with dead silence. He spoke to the manager, Jack Haggy, who agreed they should go into the room. Inside, they found Janice dead, lying wedged between the bed and a nightstand, wearing nothing but a short nightgown. Her lips were bloody when they turned her over, and her nose was broken. She had $4.50 clutched in one hand. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the musical history of Janice Joplin and her rise to rock star fame. We investigate the mystical facts and mysterious death that led to her backstage exit to the infamous 27 Club. This is Death by Misadventure. Port Arthur, Texas, in 1943, was a little oil refinery town tucked away in the southeast corner of Texas, a bastion of middle America at the end of the Second World War. Close to the Louisiana border, it was a conservative time in a town that thought itself religious, while it was still easy to find brothels, gambling and booze. It had no idea that it was about to spawn one of the greatest blues rock singers of the 60s. Janice Lynn was born to Dorothy and Seth Joplin on January the 19th, 1943. She had two younger siblings, Laura and Michael, who she adored. Her father, an engineer at Texaco Oil, and a mum, a housewife. The straight-laced Christian family would forge Janice's youth. The post-war economy allowed her family and peers a strong middle-class allowance, a nice house, car, a decent education. Meanwhile, the other half in Port Arthur, who lived on the other side of the tracks, felt isolated. The stratification wasn't defined by education, only race. Growing up, her family loved to listen to show tunes, and they attended church every Sunday. Janice sang in the choir, joined the glee club, and loved to paint. She had the true soul of an artist, but when she hit her teens, she found herself at odds with the small-town mindset of Port Arthur. The love and security provided by her family couldn't protect her from the dichotomies of her local culture, soon reflected by the cruelties of her high school dynamics. Things began to shift for Janice in her teens. She gained weight, her skin became scarred by acne, and her self-image suffered from the scorn and insults of her peers. She insisted on dressing and acting differently, and they hated her for it. Port Arthur was indeed a town without pity. Snubbed by her schoolmates in a one high school town meant being snubbed by the whole town. Early on, she realised she was an outsider and searched for other offbeat characters, not only from Port Arthur, but also from popular culture. She tried desperately to please her family and peers, but to her dismay, 
was targeted and ridiculed for her plain looks and diversive tastes. She did as all bright minds did at the time, rebelled. The beatniks were cultural outcasts, reading Kerouac and Ginsberg, listening to Odessa and the Weavers. Janice saw her Texan family ethics starkly outshone by the primal emotions of the great blue standards she loved. Bessie Smith, Led Belly, and Odetta sang of the pain Janice felt. She would learn to play and sing with the fire and deep ache of her heroes. In high school, she buried herself in art and especially music. She taught herself guitar, and while she was good at art, she let it drop when she realised that she was much better at music. She would trek across the Louisiana border to hear rocking blues in raucous roadhouses. Blues, rock, and Cajun rang loud and proud in these bars. Louisiana's drinking age was 18, and the party was on. Janice graduated high school in 1960, armed with a well-rounded musical vocabulary. She then enrolled to Lamar Tech in Beaumont, the sister city of Port Arthur. She lasted for almost six months before she took off, at first trying to make a go playing country-western bars in the area before taking off for Venice, California. There, she met Chet Helms, and in 1963, he talked her into going to San Francisco. She honed her craft in the SF coffee houses, but her growing love of alcohol and amphetamines began to wear on her. She wasn't surviving the hippie life, and weighing around 90 pounds, she bounced back to Port Arthur. Back home, she cleaned up and got herself together, but the dark Port Arthur derisiveness ate into her again, and she moved away, enrolling in the University of Texas in Austin 1965. Austin may have been positive for Janice's musical evolution, but it was equally corrosive as students taunted her for her rough looks and rowdy ways. She was saved in 1966 when she got a call from her old friend Chet Helms, asking her to come back to San Francisco. Chet Helms was a member of the family dog commune, and the owner-proprietor of the Avalon Ballroom, one of the first venues to feature the new bands coming out of SF, the Jefferson Airplane, the Charlatans, and the Grateful Dead, to name a few. It was 1967, the Summer of Love. Chet Helms would become the manager of Janice's new band, Big Brother and the Holding Company. In 1967, Joplin moved into a second-floor apartment at 635 Ashbury Street with her lover, Peggy Caserta, with whom she had a recurring relationship. The weekend of June 16th through 18th, 1967, would be a turning point for Janice in her musical career. She was invited to play with Big Brother and the Holding Company at the Monterey Pop Festival, also known as the Summer of Love. And it was also where the Jimi Hendrix experience had its American debut. The festival launched the careers of many who played there, making some of them into stars virtually overnight, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Canned Heat, Otis Redding, and Steve Miller. After Joplin's electric performance, she was swiftly signed by Clive Davis. Among the 1,200 journalists covering the festival was music critic Robert Christgau, who was then writing for Esquire magazine, would later tell NPR about Janice. 
I very much remember her playing In the Sunshine, and everyone was really not just exalted, but kind of flabbergasted at how intense it was. Like a lot of musicians at the time, Joplin was trying to sing like a black blues musician. Chris Gauss says most were not convincing. Janice, on the other hand, blew audiences away with her raw, emotional voice. Janice once said, Playing is just about feeling. Joplin said, It isn't necessarily about misery. It isn't about happiness. It's just about letting yourself feel all those things you already have inside of you but are trying to push aside because they don't make for polite conversation or something. But if you just get up there, that's the only reason I can sing. Because I can get up there and I can just let all those things come out. By April 1968, Janice and the Big Brother and the Holding Company were in New York to record Cheap Thrills for Columbia. Big Brother had some trouble in the recording studio. Janice didn't like the vibe and felt New York had made everyone aggressive. San Francisco's different, she told writer Nat Entoff in the New York Times. I don't mean it's perfect, but the rock bands there didn't start because they wanted to make it. They dug getting stoned and playing for people dancing. What we have to do is learn to control success. Cheap Thrills, featuring all of Joplin's top hits, Ball and Chain, Peace of My Heart, etc., came out in September of 1968 and hit number one on the charts and stayed eight non-consecutive weeks. Janice was now the hottest ticket in rock and roll. Record Mirror called her a mixture of Lead Belly, a steam engine Calamity Jane, Bessie Smith, an oil derrick, and rot gut bourbon funneled into the 20th century, somewhere between El Paso and San Francisco. Janice herself was quoted as saying, There's no patent on soul. You know how that whole myth of black soul came up? Because white people don't allow themselves to feel things. Housewives in Nebraska have pain and joy. They've got soul if they give in to it. It's hard. As her fame grew, so did her insecurities and addictions. Janice was rarely seen without her bottle of Southern Comfort on or off stage. She indulged in alcohol and heroin to get through her performances, to wind down, and to self-medicate to get through daily life. She had periods of sobriety where work or romance dictated her to maintain emotional stability. However, she continued to gravitate back to drugs and alcohol again and again. By 1969, it was estimated she was using around $200 of heroin daily, or about $1,300 in 2016 dollars. By November, the band had lost its groove for Janice, and the rumors of the holding company breaking up couldn't be ignored. Janice played her last gig with the band December 1st at the Family Dog for Chet Helms. She'd already begun rehearsing her new band, the Janice Review and Main Squeeze, and there were the usual ugly stories making the rounds. Sam Andrew, who played with Janice in her second band, said she had fought the split with the holding company for a long time, but fate stepped in and the soulful singer could no longer ignore the signs, or was her unhappiness fueled by addiction. One night at Winterland, a couple of the guys were sick, and afterwards she felt the guys were no longer really trying. The singer was led by her emotions and decided it was time to make a change. From the very beginning, the squeeze lacked musical chemistry. 
The setup was Sam Andrew on guitar, Bill King organ, Marcus Doubleday trumpet, Terry Clemens tenor sax, Brad Campbell bass, and Ron Markowitz drums. Janice was scheduled to debut in Tennessee at the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. The scheduled acts included the Barquets, Otis Redding's old band, Albert King, the Mad Lads, Judy Clay, Eddie Floyd, and Janice. However, her band, The Squeeze, seemed out of place, tuning their instruments and setting up interminably. Half the crowd had no idea who she was, and the teens had only heard her songs Ball and Chain and Peace of My Heart. She opened the set with Raise Your Hand and followed with the Bee Gees to love somebody. The crowd was not digging it. In fact, there was almost no applause. Backstage, the band was in shock. Janice had sung well, but the gig had felt flat. After the show, during an interview, Janice interrupted the journalist with her own questions and it appeared for desperate reassurance. She asked, Hey, I've never sung so great. Don't you think I'm singing better? Well, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm really better, believe me. Reporter Paul Nelson observed, One gets the alarming feeling that Joplin's whole world is precariously balanced on what happens to her musically. That the necessary degree of honest cynicism needed to survive an all-media assault may be buried too far under the immensely likable but tremendously underconfident naivete. On June 12th, Janice and her new band, Full Tilt Boogie, debuted at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. There were only 4,000 fans in attendance, but the show was a knockout. On August 6, 1970, Janice would be featured on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. A few days later, she played her last show with Full Tilt Boogie at Harvard Stadium on August 12th before 40,000 people. Afterward, the band was scheduled to record a new album in L.A. for a November or December release. Before she hit the studio, Janice would make one last public appearance with karmic undertones in Port Arthur, Texas, to visit her family and attend her 10-year high school reunion. She was a rock star now and wanted to make a bold statement about her success, specifically to say a big F you to those who had treated her badly as a teenager. In true Janice style, she wore flowing blue and pink feathers in her hair, purple and white satin gold embroidered sandals and painted toenails. Janice and her entourage later swept into the Goodhue Hotel's drab petroleum room and commandeered the bar one last time. When she asked for vodka, the bartender said he had nothing but bourbon and scotch. She was quoted as saying, God, somebody go out and get a bottle of vodka. Little did she know, in less than two months, she would be dead. John Carpenter, the music editor of the L.A. Free Press and the former business partner of Chet Helms at the Family Dog, last saw Janice on September 28th at the Troubadour on Sunset Strip. He remembers she talked about her old man and appeared happy she had a steady lover. However, he felt something was off with her that evening. Janice had come to the club alone, wearing a red dress, looking for company. Toward the end of the night, Janice announced she was leaving. 
nobody said anything or even offered to take her home. Carpenter called her a cab, and she returned to her lonely hotel room and called it a night. A few days later, the last person to see Janice alive was the Landmark Hotel's manager. He told police he spoke to her briefly at 1 a.m. Sunday morning, and she appeared cheerful. She had finished her recording session at about 11 p.m. Saturday night and went with her bandmates to Barney's Beanery. John Cook, her road manager, said Janice had a few drinks and then drove her organ player back to the motel, said goodnight, and went to bed. The next day, per Rolling Stone magazine, Janice failed to show up at Sunset Sound Studios by 6 p.m. Paul Rothschild, her producer, had a strange premonition that something was wrong and sent John Cook, the road manager, over to the Landmark Hotel to see why she wasn't answering her phone. I'd never worried about her before, Rothschild was quoted as saying. Although she'd been late lots of times, it was usually that she stopped to buy a pair of pants or some chick thing like that. October 4th was Sunday, however, and there were few places to go, even in Hollywood, even for Janice. When John Cook arrived, it was almost 7 p.m., and he noticed her car in the parking lot and that the drapes in her first-floor room were drawn. She didn't answer her door when he knocked or even when he banged and yelled. He spoke to the manager, John, who agreed they should go check her room. When they opened the door... They found Janice lying wedged between the bed and the nightstand, wearing a short nightgown. Her lips were bloody, and her nose was broken. She had $4.50 clutched in one hand. A doctor arrived on the scene around 9 p.m., but found no drugs. After releasing only three albums, at the tender age of 27, Janice Joplin, the Texas blues singer, was pronounced dead. By 11 p.m. that night, Wild rumors were spreading across the media. Had Janice been killed by some jealous guy? By a notorious drug dealer? Even by the CIA? Or had she killed herself over someone? Because she had always been so self-destructive. Each new theory had its informed proponents, and each one was equally groundless, fueling the curse of the Deadly 27 Club. Many years later, the book, Going Down with Janice, written by her former lover, Peggy Caserta, she recounted the 24 hours leading up to the singer's death. She claimed both Janice's fiancé, Seth Morgan, and her had stood the singer up that night for a planned threesome. However, later Caserta would admit in an interview with Vulture magazine that Joplin had been clean in the time leading up to her death. That is, until she ran into a drug dealer delivering dope to Caserta in the hotel lobby, where she later died. Caserta claims Janice had walked out of her hotel room to get cigarettes and ran into George in the landmark lobby. This chance encounter would prove to be a fatal one when she came back to her room to get high. Less than 24 hours later, the singer would be dead. Although the coroner's report stated otherwise, Caserta still believes Janice did not die of a drug overdose, but a fatal trip. She told the magazine, She tripped and fell, honey. I'm positive of it. Which makes one wonder, was Peggy Caserta there?
It's fair to say the music industry has experienced a lot of loss. The pressures of fame can be too much for many rock stars, and many decide to check out early. While it's not uncommon for musicians to die at a young age, one significant age seems to stick out. This magical number has inspired many conspiracy theories and even coined the popular phrase, the 27 Club. Is 27 a symbolic number or a harbinger of doom? In numerology, it equals to the number nine and represents the end of a life cycle. If you study the history of rock stars who have met an early demise, the mysterious patterns of life and death are intense and are compounded by the dreaded Saturn return per astrological lore. With over 60 musicians passing away at the coincidental age of 27, over the years, this iconic group have achieved mystical rock star status. In October 1970, Janice was the third rock star to die in less than four months. In July, Jim Morrison of The Doors had sadly drowned in a bathtub in Paris. And Jimi Hendrix mysteriously died of a drug overdose in September. All three musicians died at the deadly age of 27, leaving fans spooked, asking, who's next? Just before her death, Janice was in LA to record her new album, and the band had a November tour scheduled. Friends and bandmates stated that she was in good spirits and happy to be in the studio. However, I believe Janice's life was not as rosy as family and friends described. People who suffer from depression can be laughing on the outside and crying on the inside. By her own admission, she was a very lonely girl despite all the people surrounding her. She had many lovers, but remained a loner even after fame. Janice once said in an interview, On stage, I make love to 25,000 people. Then I go home alone. I find it interesting that a hard-partying singer had the wisdom to write and sign her will at the young age of 27. Even more intriguing, three days before her death, Janice added an additional clause asking her lawyer to set aside $2,500 for her future wake. She wanted to make sure her friends would celebrate her life in rock star style. Did she have a premonition that death was near? And what inspired the sudden need to get her affairs in order? Janice's attorney remarked to his surprise after getting her estate in order. Janice, like a true Capricorn, had every checkbook and every check reconciled, including all her bank statements in a file. Everything was in perfect order. She may have been carefree in her love life, but she was damn frugal with her money, and she saved more than she spent. What I find even more compelling is when Janice's lifeless body was found in room 105 at the Landmark Hotel, she had $4.50 clutched in one hand equal to the number nine. Had fate left his calling card that the bluesy Texas singer had completed her soul contract and she was ready to join the 27 Club, or was it just leftover change from a deadly dime bag? Either way, I believe karma played a significant role in Janis Joplin's final hours, when she climbed aboard the last train to the afterlife. Born under the sign of Capricorn, Janice had two distinct sides to her personality. There was her public persona, affectionately known as Pearl, and the softer side her family knew and loved. She once remarked in an interview, people seem to have a high sense of drama about me, and she was right. In an interview after her death, Janice's father, Seth Joplin, tried to dispel some of the ugly rumors about his baby girl and give insight to the soulful singer's Texas upbringing. 
He said his daughter was a lonely and vulnerable girl growing up, who used her hell-raising ways as a defense mechanism. He agreed she had a wild streak, but also she had a heart of gold. He highlighted her kindness by sharing a story about Janice meeting a young runaway from L.A. The young girl had come to Hollywood to find fame and fortune, but Janice convinced her to return home. She even took her to the bus station and bought her a ticket back to Louisiana. After Janice's death, the young woman called her parents to say how much she appreciated the singer's help. She said she was now married and a mom. She believed Janice had saved her life. He also wanted to set the record straight about the stories of Janice running away from home, and he said they weren't true. His daughter loved her family, and they loved her too. In fact, she came home more frequently than he would have expected, and they even traveled to California to see her shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco and the Monterey Pop Festival. The last song Janice recorded was Mercedes-Benz, which would go on to be included on her posthumous album, Pearl, in 1971. It became the biggest-selling album of her career and featured her biggest hit single, Me and Bobby McGee. However, her death continued to hit the music community hard, and the legendary music promoter Bill Graham weighed in on the conspiracy theories surrounding the tragic deaths of Hendrix and Joplin. He denied there were any connections between the two. He sarcastically remarked, I'm sure that somebody has thrown the I Ching or somebody is turning over the pages of some book and reading the charts and looking through the stars and saying, I knew it, I knew it. He believed Janice, like many budding rock stars, didn't know how to handle success. He thought it created problems, but it never spoiled her. Eerily, Graham would die 20 years later in a helicopter plane crash after a Huey Lewis in the News concert in Vallejo, California. On a bittersweet note, in February 1970, Janice had traveled to Brazil to dry out. During her stay, she met a man named David, who helped her kick her drug habit, and they fell in love. He was unable to return to the States with her at the time, and once back in the U.S., Janice had started using again, and the relationship suffered. David continued his travels, but he never fell out of love with Pearl. On the morning after her death, a telegram was found at the Landmark Motor Hotel. It read, Love you, Mama, more than you know. Leaving you to wonder whether things would have turned out differently for Janice and David if she had received the note one day earlier from her former lover. There is one final odd twist to the story. Many fans wondered what happened to Janice's rumored fiancé, Seth Morgan. After her death, he went on to marry a Sausalito waitress. He forced his new wife into prostitution during their marriage while he acted as her pimp. The marriage was short-lived, and Morgan later claimed he had married her to prevent her from suing him after the two had been involved in a motorcycle accident that left her face partially paralyzed. The story doesn't end there. After his divorce, Morgan returned to San Francisco to work as a bouncer in strip clubs and would later be arrested for armed robbery. He was sentenced to prison from 1977 to 1980. In 1986, he moved to New Orleans and wrote a novel called Homeboy. It was about heroin addicts and criminals in San Francisco that included a flamboyantly dressed prostitute whose character was based on Janis Joplin. 
On October 18, 1990, Morgan was arrested in New Orleans for a DUI and was released on bail that was paid by his girlfriend, Susie Levine. The following night, shortly before midnight, both Morgan and Susie were killed instantly when he crashed his motorcycle into a cement pile. It was exactly 20 years and two weeks later after Janis Joplin's death. Just a year before her death, Janice left the streets of San Francisco and moved to a little bungalow in Larkspur in Marin County. Marin is known for its natural beauty. Larkspur was a quaint little town, and she chose a cute little cottage at the end of Baltimore Street. She shared her new home with friend Lindell Erb, a clothing designer, and friends said it was a happy time for her. However, Joplin's transformation from the ugly duckling of Port Arthur to the rock and roll mistress of Haight Ashbury was sadly short lived. In the fall of 1970, the music world, still reeling from the recent death of Jimi Hendrix in September, heard that Janice had died of a drug overdose in a seedy Hollywood motel just a few weeks later. What's even stranger, just three days before her death, Janice paid a visit to her attorney. Robert Gordon, because she wanted to make an important change to her will. Did the singer have a sense that the end was near? What I believe is most telling about Janice's state of mind is a conversation she had with writer Nat Hentoff in April 1968. The singer revealed her struggle with depression and how she was unable to truly control her feelings. She described how she felt like an outsider growing up and before getting into music. It had torn her life apart. She was quoted as saying, When you feel that much, you have super horrible downs. I was always victim to myself. Maybe I won't last like other singers, but I think you can destroy your now by worrying about tomorrow. Man, if it hadn't been for the music... I probably would have done myself in. Janice wrote in her will that she had set aside $2,500 to pay for a posthumous all-night party for 200 guests at her favorite pub, The Lion's Share, in San Anselmo. She noted, so my friends can get blasted after I'm gone. Also, she tasked her roommate Lindell with giving away her clothes, jewelry, and furnishings to friends. The remainder of her estate was left to her family. Even though Lindell was supposed to distribute Janice's belongings to friends, the process quickly became chaotic. A lot of her friends came in and took stuff without asking. Her parents insisted on a private funeral, and Janice was cremated in the Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Mortuary in Los Angeles. Her ashes were scattered from a plane along Stinson Beach in Marin. The service was only attended by Joplin's parents and her aunt. Janice's wake was held on October 26, 1970. The invitation read, The drinks are on Pearl. In true Janice Joplin style, the party was wild, with the band The Grateful Dead providing entertainment along with several other performers. 
Her sister, boyfriend, and close friends all came to pay their final respects to the rock and roll legend and celebrate her backstage exit to the afterlife. Janis Joplin brought her powerful, bluesy voice from Texas to San Francisco's psychedelic scene, where she went from a lonely drifter to an unforgettable superstar. Growing up, she shared a close bond with her family, and in 1967, she brought them out to San Francisco to see the Summer of Love concert, and it truly kicked off her career as a powerful and emotional soul singer. The last time her family saw Janis was in 1970, when she returned to Port Arthur to attend a 10-year high school reunion. When she died in the fall of 1970, her sister Laura was only 21, and brother Michael 17. Both devastated by the loss of their beloved big sister, together they have kept her memory alive and continued to jointly watch over her estate for almost 50 years. Rock critic Lillian Roxon summed up her influence with these words. Janis Joplin perfectly expressed the feelings and yearnings of the girls of the electric generation. To be all women, yet equal to men. To be free, yet a slave to real love. To reject every outdated convention, and yet get back to the basics of life. Yes, her star rose fast, burned bright, but she took a piece of all of our hearts when she died on October the 4th, 1970, in room number 105, at the Landmark Hotel in Hollywood. In the end, memories of some superstars may fade away, but true rock stars like Janis Joplin never die. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, J.C. Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>